Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. super cool hyperspatial engine as a deep fold drive. It's the official nomenclature, Captain. It's right here in the memo from... Let me guess. It's a memo from Chief Science Officer Ian, isn't it? You got one too? Why do you think I've stopped calling you number one? I thought it was because that teenage ensign kept giggling every time you said it. I think he finds it amusing. Toilet humour and all that. Yes. Last time I agreed to allow someone from work experience at the local comprehensive to come on board. Ah, Captain, First Officer, I'm so glad I've called the two of you together. I think we might have a small problem. What is it, Mr. Ian? No hyperspatial anomalies detected. We're not going to re-enter normal space in the heart of a star or anything, I hope. Oh, no, uh, nothing like that. I just thought I might share some concerns I had about our primary mission, if that's all right. Our mission... To, um, find peculiar novel planets? To, what was it? To search for unclassified organisms and undiscovered societies. To bravely venture? Yes, all of that. It's just, well, I've been having a think about it all, and, well, I don't think we can run with those mission objectives. Why not? Well, don't you think they're a bit, well, similar to... You know. Oh, for heaven's sake. Steady on, letter A. I'll take care of this. Mr. Ian, we've been through this. Nobody really cares if our primary mission is a bit like the one from that one television show. Respectfully, Captain, I disagree. We're using this advanced technological marvel to plough our own furrow. We're explorers, wayfarers. We forge ahead in hopes of discovering wonders and undreamed advances. 
How are we supposed to keep a sense of intrepid adventure alive in our hearts if we consider ourselves to be following in the footsteps of a fictional crew from the late 1960s? The word fictional would appear to be key here, you irritating pedant. Mr. Ian, while I understand your point, I... Well, don't take this the wrong way, but I think it's... Stupid. Thank you. Finally someone had the balls to say it. Look, I've been having a think, and there are other, equally valid primary mission parameters. If we could just have a look at them, well, I'm sure everyone would benefit in the long run. Go on, then. Well, we've been dispatched from our homeworld by big bays, killer robots, and a horde of flesh-eating zombies, so I thought we could just define our mission as being one to find our way home. Safely. Safely home. Isn't that just the prime mission of the Starship Voyager? And also the main goal of John Crichton from Farscape? Oh yes, you're right. Okay, uh, well... I have a few possible angles here. How about... We are all seeking out new technologies and alien alliances in order to assist us with a coming war upon our old homeworld. That's just Stargate SG-1, really, isn't it? Okay, well, we found this space cruiser in a hangar under a bunker. We've no idea who built it, and the design has similarities to an ancient carvings of an unknown province unearthed in Africa. Maybe we're seeking out our far more advanced interstellar ancestors in the... Stargate Atlantis! That's bloody Stargate Atlantis! Okay, maybe we could just alter our mission slightly. Forget Earth, let's just find somewhere nice to live. I'm not giving up on Earth, and, to be honest, that's kind of Battlestar Galactica. Just, you know, in reverse. Basically, Ian, there's no mission parameters you can come up with that haven't already been done to death on television in the past. You might as well give up. I mean, I don't see what was so unoriginal about the original mission brief. To seek out a technology or ally that could help us remedy an apocalyptic plague that has reduced our once-proud civilization to ruins. As I have already pointed out, that is uncomfortably close to the premise of Babylon 5 spin-off Crusade, for my tastes. Could we not just forget Crusade? Everyone else did. It's the failed spin-off to a minor league space drama only about 20 people watched. It's not a big deal. You take that back. Babylon 5 was groundbreaking. Gentlemen, we are not to fight over the importance of old science fiction television shows. The mission parameters remain as they are. And technically, Babylon 5 had two spin-offs. That's enough. I can't take any more of this. You two can stay here and argue the toss over the plot arcs of ancient television shows if you like. I'm off to the holodeck to relax. Uh, before you go... What's this? Another memo? Pursuant to the ongoing review of official ship board nomenclature, the holodeck is from now on to be known as the AR Quarters. Oh, I believe it! This is ridiculous! Right! Executive decision. We're going to get this thing sorted out right now. Let's just do a review of some of these space opera television programmes and see if we can't find ourselves some mission parameters that will keep Mr Pedantic Pants here happy. Well, that uh, might be a good idea, Leo, as for once I can claim to have actually done some research on this one. Well, that's nice. Uh, research is always good, especially being as you are the chief science officer around here. Um, but yes, today, of course, uh, 
we uh, kind of had a little think about uh, our previous 2000s television show and it is uh, you know perhaps fine to get through a bunch of shows that didn't last any more than two seasons in you know an hour and a half that's great just romp through them all but then as soon as you get into shows which went on a bit longer you kind of run into this problem that that maybe you know uh, programs changed over a number of seasons or whatever so obviously today here we are ian uh, is here of course hello and justin also has not skipped off to the ar quarters he is going to help us work through this thing i'm here in in in, in all my reality Exactly. And we're going to be looking at some of the space operas that came along in the 2000s. And I think probably the best way to start is by cheating. Uh, not not properly cheating, maybe just cheating a, a tiny amount. Because uh, we're going to start, I think, with uh, one of the most important space operas of the last ooh, couple of decades. <laughs> Make us feel old again. Which is uh, Farscape, which did start in 1999, but most of its run was in the 2000s. And, uh, yeah, it, I think it's, it's very, uh, definitely a different kind of space opera experience than people have experienced before or indeed since. Well, uh, first I'm just going to use my capacity as science officer to turn on the life support system because I need some cold air blowing on me because goodness me, Australia's warm. So sorry about the fan noise, everybody. Um, but Yay! Yes, Farscape, yes, Farscape, uh, was a series. I didn't take two initially. It was on, and this was back in the 90s, so you're still a bit star for science fiction, so you're willing to get anything a bit of a go. Even things like Space Precinct, you'd find yourself going back for another episode just to make sure you just accidentally catch a bad one. And it's, Farscape is a series I love very dearly, but my goodness, I think it took a little while for it to get its, to get its grooving gear and learn what it could do well and where it was different. And uh, even though I think most of the fans will probably look back and fondly remember the story arc, there's very little story arc in the first series and only about half, you know, and a bit of a story arc in the second. It's more a case of one thing following another, which, as I said before, is probably the best form of story arc. It's not until you get to series, sort of, at the end of series two, series three, that things are really, really arc-worthy. But yes, it was a, a bonkers series of puppets before CGI or, or people with squiggly things stuck all over their head. And it's utterly bonkers and crazy and a bit sexy and dangerous. And aliens are just as more likely to try and eat you or screw you or possibly do both. At the same time. Yes. That kind of a show. I mean, the first series, you know, the main antagonist in the first series is Commander Kreis. And he's, he's a crazed commander who's after Crichton because of reasons. And he's not very good as a, as a primary villain. And I think they did, they did very good in, instead of just killing him off in kind of an endless series finale, they kind of decided to make the character work by making him just a complete renegade who worked in parallel with the crew rather than against them necessarily. He became more of a neutral agent that I had to deal with. I think the good thing about Farscape is the writers always saw something good when it came along and were willing to seize upon it. Uh, the character of Chiana was just supposed to be a one-episode wonder who got shot. They thought, no, we like her, we'll keep her. Stark was supposed to be a one-episode character as well. Nope, no crazy guy with a metal plate on his head. We'll keep him. Scorpius could easily have been bumped off at the end of the first adventure he was in. But no, no, he, he's a good villain. Keep him around. Boy, are we going to keep him around. And just generally going with those ideas they knew worked well. So by the end of it all, a series about a fairly cliche idea about, you know, the astronaut cast the far side of the galaxy becomes an epic tale of empires clashing over the secrets of wormhole technology stuck inside the head of the astronaut whilst he deals with his relationship issues and the bond of friendship he has come to form with the people who utterly hated him the first season and a half of Farscape. 
So there we go. That's a, an excellent sort of summary yeah. from one perspective. Justin, yeah. you've been fast yeah. fan. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think visually it just blew me away, really. I mean, I, I'd liked Star Trek, and so we would watch all of those shows and stuff, but I think that Farscape just kind of got me more, I think, just because it was more of that kind of Star Wars universe in terms of the scope of the aliens and the strange things. Um, because it, as I say, because it wasn't predominantly just people with bits of rubber stuck on their head, it added something, it felt more like a, a strange science fiction, science fiction universe. So I totally bought into that. I thought the characters were excellent. I mean, I really so distinctive in terms of their, their personalities and for how they looked. You know, they really were kind of a crazy collection of people, but all of them had their own kind of great kind of strengths and weaknesses and foibles. I just thought, yeah, I think it looked great. It was kind of crazy and it didn't have that kind of pompous taking itself seriously kind of thing that I, that turns me off a bit with some of the Star Trek kind of incarnations. It was very kind of like fluffy and silly. And yeah, when it started having the kind of the main bad guys coming in, uh, great, great stuff. Um, really enjoyed it. When Farscape was first on, the first thing I saw as I, my eyes moved over an episode was, uh, of course, Jim Henson's Creature Shop made all of the aliens, well, many of the aliens. Um, they wanted that to be a sort of a different type of thing. And I was just a bit like, oh, Star Trek with Muppets? Oh. Oh no, and I kind of, I didn't really pay it much attention. And then one day I was watching, it was, it had got into season two and an episode came on and it was the episode, uh, whose, whose name I still remember, uh, well I, I know quite a lot of the names of the episodes, but this one in particular is called Won't Get Fooled Again. And, uh, it's a bit of a weird one to watch as the first thing that you actually really pay attention to because it, it, it actually back references this idea that in the first season at one point, some aliens, uh, simulate Crichton returning home for a bit. And, and, and then he works out that it's not real and there's a bit of a confrontation. So in this one, it's the same sort of thing except the illusion is much more thorough, uh, like, for example, in the first occasion through, if he tries to go somewhere he never saw, the aliens haven't recreated it. They've got no way of knowing what it looked like, so they just don't bother. And so that's how he rumbles it. In this one, he does something like, ah, I never went in the ladies' bathroom in this building. And they open it, and, like, a woman's like, ah, pervert. And he's like, oh, okay not that kind of deal then so it kind of makes these references to him so he's it's weird because he knows that it's not real but he can't break it and that becomes the dramatic point of the thing which is for a start pretty different the idea that you're in an illusion and you know it but you can't escape and then every so often it just goes really bonkers and then slowly over the course of the episode it's revealed what is really happening but i was watching that i was like well that's a bit different like having the main villain as a hippie drummer in a pub rock band was just like, okay, this is really doing some odd things. I may have, may have missed something here. I may have harshly judged that. Farscape at that time, uh, well, DVDs were new and it was, uh, the, the people who got the rights to distribute the DVDs were a famously one of the, you know, whereas some companies kind of embraced the idea of here's the whole season for 40 pounds. They kind of went with the old video model of here's three episodes for a tenner. And so to get the whole season, you'd have to spend like 200 quid or something. So it became sort of scarce. 
And so that was something you have to keep trying to catch episodes and piece together this bonkers tapestry in your own head. And then you're like, next time they do a season, I'm not I'm not missing any of it. I'm going to be right there. So slowly, you know, it started to worm its way in. And yeah, they did do several things correctly that, that were new, I think, to space opera. For the start, as, as you've pointed out, Ian, the characters varied between sort of getting along. Trouble was never far away in between the characters. The characters didn't, it wasn't like Star Trek in that everybody just got along. They were kind of thrown together. Uh, against their wishes by circumstance and that meant that when they didn't see eye to eye they could get quite you know and then you know even characters on the ship could legitimately be sort of the episode bad guy because of the circumstance they kept like changing the frame of reference yeah that's something that that is kind of odd i mean they don't do that very often where you can actually have a character who's usually one of the good guys now being the bad guy next week they're going to be a good guy again just because they've come against a, a circumstance which dictates that their actions go against everyone else's actions so that was uh inventive in terms of drama uh, in a space opera and there were a couple of actors who said you know we went on the set and we were thinking oh we're doing a space opera oh, this will be good laugh and then they would come out like having gone through the emotional ringer that the intensity of being on the farscape set was something else you know when it really got into those dramatic moments and i think that really translated across on the screen so yeah farscape it came out of nowhere and then became i think one of the greatest space operas yes. There's ever been on television. I, I really. think I think the tipping point was series three. I mean, before then, I could watch it, but I could also miss it and not be upset. But come series three, I had to be there every week. I had to go to message boards afterwards. It's just obsession began. It was proper fandom descended down upon me because they were so into it. There was, and again, the intensity of the characterization as well. The emotional ringer doesn't even cover half of it. My goodness. One of the things about it is that really proved out in the long run. It is true that uh, there isn't much continuity in the first season. There's enough to get them through. And then one of the things that I think Farscape sort of became notorious for was its cliffhanger season endings. (laughs) Because they didn't just put you in a cliffhanger. It was it was apocalyptic. I mean, every season finale was just like, you can't, you no. You, you can't stop it there. What, what the hell are we going to do now? And that, that was something they did right from the get go. The first season ended in such a mess that the first episode of the second season is basically them pulling all the fat out of the fire. Um, like Star Trek, as far as I can remember, when they did a little bit of a cliffhanger, first of all, it was a very, kind of set up cliffhanger it's like haha we've been working up to this for ages is one thing whereas farscape hit you on several levels in the first one at least every character was in a different kind of life ending peril like a different kind like everyone was gonna die but they weren't all in a room together slowly cooking or it was one thing it's like these two were over here floating in mid space this one was these were in a, a spaceship that was about to explode this one was on a planet where and you're like well not only are the characters all in life-threatening peril but they're not even together so they've all got to get out of it their own way and i think they kind of planned that particular the first in one into two 
crossover to within an inch of its life because when you watch the first episode of season two if that's where you begin you're like i didn't see season one i'll start with this that first episode of season two makes no bloody sense whatsoever if you haven't seen the first half it's just all people being rescued for 50 minutes of people like just talking about stuff you've got no frame of reference whereas in star trek it tended to be like 10 minutes and then the cliffhanger is resolved and then we get on with the episode in a pleasant way i was like oh okay they did play with consequences i mean yes they would throw down a problem and it wouldn't be something they'd wrap up next week it could be something that they had to deal with in stages over uh, several episodes you know there is a standoff or they're hiding in an asteroid field it could be like a whole episode of them just having to deal with the fact they're now hiding in an asteroid field or something yeah exactly all of these uh, new things that Farscape brought to the table on television are things that later on, I think it helped, certainly, when Ronald D. Moore said, yeah, I want to redo Battlestar Galactica. Aha, segue time. He kind of pointed to Farscape and said, people love that. When they cancelled that without a proper resolution... I think that was even previous to Firefly, or maybe contemporaneous to it. No, prior, prior uh, to was Firefly. The whole, what, prior to Firefly. Yes, it was, wasn't it? Watchfarscape.com probably still exists, where they were like, the, the studio wants to cancel it, but if we watch it, then they have to do this and they have to do that because the viewing figures would be good enough. And the fans really organised. It wasn't going to get a resolution, and of all the series that weren't going to get a resolution and then got a little something by way of... Uh, a nip and tuck at the end. I would argue that the Peacekeeper Wars is probably the most satisfying. The first time you watch the Peacekeeper Wars, you're a bit like, wow, that was, uh, there was a lot happened there, but they kind of got through it. I've, on subsequent viewings, however, I, I've kind of gone, well, no, they, it is a mini series. It is like three or four episodes. It does take a little bit of time to do, just a little bit. It can't take too much. It's a mini series. But if you compare it to like Serenity or Firefly, it, it is a little bit more leisurely. It has a few moments, which it, it probably needs and deserves and, and what have you. But also contrasting to Ballastar Galactica, and I think there's a there's an elephant in the room in Ballastar Galactica, which is the ending, which looms like a shadow of all that's gone before. You know, people say the, the the middle of a story is always far more compelling, and once you've had the ending, it's all a bit meh, which is why everyone kind of switched off in the second Ballastar Galactica had its ending. No, 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 not at all. Look at Farscape. Farscape just resolved itself, and in a climatic and satisfactory way that paid off everything it had promised before. I like to sit back and go... What an amazing body of a story that is. It sits on my shelf and, and it's and, complete. But that's the thing. I, this is, I'm sorry, I kind of lost this point earlier. When you watch those first two series with its very loose continuity again, mm. because you know and trust that it's only the very beginning of the first season where they're finding their feet. And by the end, they have kind of got there in, in terms of the way that they act, the act the writing, things like that. They haven't quite gone all the whole hog with all the continuity and stuff. But you can perfectly happily watch those episodes of the week. And the drama is is more realistic. And I think when you first watch it, you're kind of assuming it's going to be like every other space opera show. And that is a, a mighty quality for longevity. The idea that once you are safe, you feel it's like a great novel. Like when you buy a novel then you know that the end is there because the pages exist. 
And when you're watching a television series, on the other hand, you're not at all sure that it's going to be fine all the way to the end. And when you're like, no, no, it's fine and it has a good ending and it's all perfect and it has, you know, you can really get into it. Then you watch them again. And that's why you keep watching them over and over again, because every kind of little character moment or gem is amplified by the fact that you know that it's part of something and that they're really committed and they're going for it. And while, and just my, my last thing is, blimey, isn't it weird to hear Anthony Simcoe talk and speak and move around when he's not dressed up as Dargo? That mm. is, that is one of the bizarre, that's why the makeup in this works so better, so much better than it does in other series. Because if you see Leonard Nimoy wandering around, he's one pointy ears, set of pointy ears away from being Spock. But Anthony Simcoe, I, you don't even know what he looks like until no. he takes the makeup off. Oh, I don't think I've seen him actually. Oh, um, I've got interviews with him on the DVD yeah. set and it's just really odd. But to, but to focus back <clears> on, on Ballastar Galactica, and it's a series that I, I was greatly into, it kind of like a sleeper thing because the, the mini series happened and people went, okay, fair enough. And then the proper series kicked in and my goodness, there were some yummy moments to be had there. I remember a comment someone saying, you know, saying Basque is so good, we don't even deserve it. That was a genuine sentiment people had about it all. And I just want to lance the ending now so we can go out and get on all the business of enjoying Basque Galactica because there are things to lord about it. The, the whole thing about at the end, you know, there's a few stumbling blocks. First of all, the jumping shark moment is, is half the characters turning out to be spoilers, everyone. Half the characters turning out to be Cylons which just utterly undermines their human story right up to that point. Terrible idea. Also, half the cast Cylons. Rubbish. Also, it's they get to ancient prehistoric Earth and decide, oh, you know, what, what, is, what does Leodama say? He says, you know, our technology has outpaced our souls. We need to discard our technology so we can spiritually catch up with ourselves again. And everyone does. They'd they send all their ships to the sun, get rid of all their technology, all their medicine, all their knowledge, everything, and go live off the land in separate colonies scattered everywhere. And it's just like, you're an idiot. You're an absolute idiot. Who put this guy in charge? It's a, such a mini-mouthed nonsense statement. It's, it's up there with going, our oh, vaccines are just full of chemicals. It boils my blood when I think about the implications of what he was saying. It's utterly ridiculous. Please, someone, am I just alone in this? I think that the problems with Battlestar Galactica were deeper than just the fact that the ending was was always going to be a bit rubbish. No, actually, it wasn't always going to be a bit rubbish. It just kind of went there. But I think that there were warning signs. For a start, it wasn't averse to the the, the thing that we've had. And I, I think... We're kind of getting over it now because people instantly start to roll their eyes when it comes up. J.J. Abrams' famous, infamous, notorious mystery box theory of the fact that, you know, you can have a MacGuffin that drives the plot. Oh, what is it? Oh, the mystery like that. And then it's like, well, to a certain extent, whatever it is, it doesn't matter because the point is that it's a thing that drives the plot. Although, yes, underneath it all, that's just a kind of extension of the sort of Hitchcockian idea of the MacGuffin. Uh, although Hitchcock was always like, it's always good to have it being a bomb. It's always good to have it under the table. And it's always good to have the characters not really know that it's there, but have the audience know that it is, you know, because that's what the mechanism of drama is. So, you know, Hitchcock was actually, although he said 
in general terms, we have this thing called a MacGuffin. But in specific terms, I like this kind of MacGuffin or that kind. Whereas J.J. Abrams said, hey, let's not be specific. Let's just MacGuffin out. Let's have a MacGuffin with lies. You know, whatever. It just, yeah. And obviously, J.J. Abrams is famous for that in television now. The big kind of, let's build it up. And then, oh, yeah, did you not realize I was just just making it up? Don't really know what's going on, to be honest. We were just kind of having a go. And Battlestar Galactica did have a little bit of that disease. And the other disease it had was being too hung up on thinking that people would enjoy a character episode. Uh, I still remember the, the episode that I think is in season three where they built up in the previous episode to this big cliffhanger and you were like, oh, can't wait to see the next episode. And the next episode was somebody remembering some stuff that had happened two years ago or over a course of several years in the past because we're just going to put a finger pause in the actual exciting plot that you're involved in now to gaze at our own navels for an hour. And to be honest, they weren't that bothered about doing that. At least in the first season, they had the kind of discipline that if it's like, well, this will get them going. And then in the next episode, what they would do if they wanted to do something different was build something different a different aspect to it i remember distinctly the organized crime sort of syndicate plot line they quickly abandoned in uh, in season one of battlestar galactica the previous episode something exciting had happened and then they went off on this diversion and okay so the diversion didn't work but they really committed to the diversion and as time went on and the praise for the show grew I believe they just went, ah, oh, they'll watch anything. We could put an episode about Adama doing his laundry and people would watch it. And, yeah, they got a bit smug. And that's why it all fell apart, in my opinion. Yes. Um, the other bugbear is the head six problem. Boltart sees a version of number six in his head. And then number six has a version of Boltar in a head we discover later. Now, Boltar having hallucinations is one thing, but now two separate people are, so there's definitely an agency going on here. And ultimately, he just can't resolve it, you know, the writers. They have to go, yeah, it's kind of God. And, you know, it just really just didn't sit right for me as an answer to all, because that was a whole, that lasted the entire length of the series, and then get to the end and go, yeah, yeah, it was God. They just said it was God at the beginning, and it, and it kind of was God. And it compare, it contrasts again with Farscape. Now, Farscape is about lots of mammalie or whatever monsters, animal creatures, all basically rutting each other, trying to eat each other, or so on. But there is also a spiritual dimension to it. It's very clear that our bodies are just manifestations of unconsciousnesses from a, from another plane of existence. Stark is a very spiritual creature, so is Zahn. Uh, and so this this spiritual thread of afterlife and everything uh, was running through Farscape. But it, it never hijacks the material thing going on in the story. And in Balsalatica, it kind of does. You have the super agent who had to go for this most convoluted four, four year series arc to get to this point where we all go off and be cavemen. Well done. No, I mean, I, what I would say is that, I mean, I didn't really get into Battlestar Galactica and it's made, I'm, I mean, I'm glad that sci-fi has moved on because at the time everything was all this kind of paranoia fueled kind of dark kind of things. And that's not really how I like my sci-fi. So I, I never really got into it. I'd actually, um, I mean, I've hardly seen any of them to be honest, but enough that I knew that it wasn't my thing. BSG kind of, if you got in at the beginning, you'd pretty much sit through to the end and then go, 
oh, okay, really? I heard the ending wasn't great, so it didn't really encourage me to throw time at it. That's no, you're perfectly correct in that. The disregard in which Battlestar Galactica has fallen is shown by the fact that on streaming services, you can get the whole series, including the mini-series, because that kind of is part of it. But on the way, they did two sort of television movies that cover bits of of what happened outside. I mean, they're in continuity to a certain extent. And also, afterwards, they produced yet another uh, movie uh, which talks about some other stuff that happened. And you don't get those things. And, and I think they're quite key, really, to experiencing the whole thing. And Farscape, I believe, has the Peacekeeper Wars tacked on the end on streaming services. It just shows that the people who are in control of it and the fans and, well, the old, the fans, fan base X fans, I don't think I know anyone anymore who's still like, no, Battlestar Galactica, it was great. You all just don't understand it. I've not met anyone like that. I'm sure they exist. They've just gone, oh, well, that happened. That seems to be the way that, you know, the television viewing public now view Battlestar Galactica, whereas people cherish Farscape. They're like, oh, I'm glad it exists like this, and it's all, oh, there it is, it's a thing. Whereas Battlestar Galactica is like, well, I watched that. To praise <coughs> Battlestar Galactica, because I feel I have to, because it was a thing that I did enjoy for a time. You know, there's several things laudable about it that did advance science fiction. I think one of the important things is just how it was actually praised by the actual uh, American military for its realistic portrayal. I mean, presumably they don't have robots in the Navy. But, you know, the realistic portrayal of uh, of what it's like to, to be in the Army or the Navy. It's it's not just, you know, all discipline and yes, sir. It's about dealing with people and personalities and everyone's very human. It was a science fiction series in which we very much had toilets out there and limited resources sources and you were aware that you were surviving in a tin can with what you had and that was all so i think for kind of really grounding it well to to a certain extent grounding it in kind of a reality of of actually just being there not having this technology be there in a mundane contemptible sense like it perhaps it is an alien or something but you know it 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 was a really like it was a a genuine space you you could believe it you you understood it if you were there you could probably get a get around with things you know so i think that was very praiseworthy. The realism, which meant that the human drama was more realistic, which is why I say everyone turned out to be silent and undercuts it slightly. And uh, I, I, I think my, my brother was was a huge fan of this. But you know, he, he likes you know he likes his combat simulators and his space military, and he'd, he'd probably love a game where he had a couple of base stars and he had some battle stars and he could launch his vipers and run, roll some dice and he'd, he'd be totally into things like that. So those kind of aspects were. Absolutely superb, I thought. There's a very well realised universe. Uh, yeah, it, it kind of, and that's the point. I think that it, it suffered from focus slippage, and that, that where they got a really good concept at the beginning, it kind of got diluted uh, under the weight of its own continuity and probably a sense of its own self-importance due yes. to the fact that people are like, well, it's very contemporary and it, it talks about the modern world through the lens of science fiction and became very worthy. And uh, yeah, it, and, and I think the problem is that the conclusion undermines the enjoyable bits from the beginning. 
That's why you, you can't watch it again because you know where it's going. And part of the joy of it was not really knowing where it's going. I remember watching in the first series the episode where the actor, I still cannot get over the, I can't remember what number he was now, but, uh, the, the guy, the kind of spiritual weird guy Cylon with the spiritual edge who had a, a bit of a sort of relationship, not in a sense of a relationship relationship. In a stalker but he relationship. He got to Starbucks. Starbuck, yeah. yes, Starbuck, an adversarial, a rivalry, an enmity. It was a very fascinating interpersonal relationship. And in that first episode where she grills the Cylon they have captured because they remember seeing a, the same model on a thing that blew up. And, and he's like trying to undermine and prod at Starbucks certainties and, and what have you. And it becomes all very psychological. I mean, he's a sort of a key a side a character to show what happened to the show because the first time he appeared absolutely captivating like he summed up a particular aspect of the Cylon society that uh, was was quite important to the ongoing drama and sort of the engagement with them and over time they just kind of oh yeah him forget about him yeah he appeared every so often and then got blown out of an airlock or shot in the head or something or whatever. We don't care about him anymore. And that was kind of the point. He was kind of the, he was the, the real kind of uncomfortable spirituality and he was like the extremist and they kind of subverted that and turned it away. And he, that, that model disappeared bit by bit. I think it's because they got, uh, in Cavill, who's played by Dean Stockwell. I think they're kind of like, we got Dean Stockwell on the cast. Fantastic. Start giving him very long speeches. And he became, eventually he evolved into the principal villain of the entire series. So I think number two, that's the spiritual guy talking about, kind of fell away uh, as a result of the rise of John, of, of, uh, Dean Stockwell's importance in events. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there we go. So that, that, so we've got Farscape, we've got BSG, they're both trying to do something new with space opera to varying degrees of success. But let's go back to the roots. What's what's our favourite space opera television franchise doing in the 2000s? What is Star Trek up to? Ian, what's Star Trek up to? Uh, I believe this was the era of uh, Star Trek Enterprise. Should we have a long discussion about Star Trek Enterprise now? <clears throat> You can have a long discussion about Starship Enterprise. Did you watch Starship Enterprise or Enterprise, as it was called, Justin? I I, I think I've seen about two or three of them. Went. Um, I'm not. You've seen it, you've seen up to, up to three of them. I've think seen so. I think that, and that, that, that many and went like I can pretty much guess the formula of this, and nothing is grabbing me at all. So I just I gave up. Yeah. So, uh, Ian, uh, tell us what was wrong with Enterprise, seeing as you're the one, you're the expert well, here. I think, I think when Voyage wrapped up, there was a general feeling of, amongst the fans and maybe the production, I don't know, of like, eh, this isn't really going very well anymore. We're kind of it's getting, getting a bit stale. We need to refresh it. So they decided to do a prequel series that was set before the original Star Trek. Uh, but my goodness, they kept all the people that made Voyager. So what did you think was going to happen? So it's pretty dire, I'm sorry to say. I've, I haven't seen all of it, I must confess, and I'm, I'm willing to take on faith that the last series was actually all right if you're a Star Trek fan, I'm sure it was, but the damage was already done and fairly irreparable, irreparable, almost you could say. What was wrong with it? What was the point of it? Yeah, I think <laughs> the concept is basically flawed, I think. 
I th- and, well, I think the other part about it is that uh, the the studio, I know uh, it's come out since that, one, they were kind of embarrassed by the Star Trekness of Star Trek, so they wanted to make Star Trek that wasn't Star Trek, not for Star Trek fans, but for new fans, hipper fans, cooler fans. We don't just don't feel this Star Trek thing has the right kind of fan. You know, it's a bit like if if you've got like a really popular kind of cafe that has a particular clientele and they're bringing the money in, and then one day the proprietor just just closes the door for a couple of days when it reopens it's a new kind of wine bar type and it's, it's trying to appeal to a completely different demographic and all the old people come and like they press their noses up against the window and go oh no i'm not going in there it's horrible and they all leave and then nobody comes in and then the business shuts down i mean it's exactly that they just decided that their own fan base wasn't good enough for them and so they wanted a new one and then they didn't get one and and that's why it's called Enterprise and not Star Trek Enterprise. Yes, it does. Because they wanted to disassociate itself with itself. I think it also started out on, on a relatively new channel as well. People often look at the ratings and go, look at this, it was awful. We're going, well, it was on a different American equivalent of Channel 5, which was, which was a thing back in the 2000s that was new in it and, uh, and like cheap. And not many people watched it or could get it. Um, so there's that as well, and yeah, it's it's the music from the be- from the beginning. You know, the pop song opening was a bit, uh, and the yes. if they wanted to say let's have a Star Trek series about people roughing it a bit more, why didn't they rough it a bit more? The characters were kind of interesting. Well, characters, no, characters weren't interesting. They were stupid most of the time. Doing raised Archer is a, a really rubbish captain. It has been pointed out several times. They keep trying to do like. You know, moral episodes, but they don't understand some of the scientific implications they bring in. So the moral quandaries are wrong. The one that really sticks in my throat and is, is a bugbear for several fans as well is the one we discover a planet which has two species on it. And one is a dominant species and one is like sort of sidelined because there's a, a more greater dominant species on the planet. The dominant species is, is dying out due to a genetic fault. So this other species is going to fill to take the void. And the Dr. Phlox, the, you know, the strange avian alien doctor on board Enterprise goes like, well, I've discovered a cure uh, that will fix their genetic problems. I'm not going to use it, however, because nature has selected this other species to die off and we should respect evolution. You don't understand what evolution is. Shut up. Evolution is not a thing that picks and chooses. Um, So, you know, he's prepared to put genocide on the back of that. It's a big universe. The other race can just go somewhere else and spread out. Yeah, I mean, frustration. I think it was just a futile, it's a dangerous thing to do, and ultimately, obviously, they paid the price for it failing, because you take something that's got an awful lot of back history, and then you're doing a prequel for that, well, you better be amazing at what you're doing with that, because it's like uh, film franchises, if you make a rubbish prequel, people will just forget it exists, Uh, but if you do enough damage, it might even affect the core of, there's so many things it could have done wrong to play around with, and I'm sure a lot of people nitpicked about, you know, the continuity of stuff happening. Oh, yeah. And events might have, that you've got such a minefield that there is a reason why, they, you know, they up to that point, they have just been continuing the timeline on. Because at least that way, you can go back in time for fun for the odd, you know, episode, but you're not going to intrinsically change the past. It was an utterly pointless prequel. I mean, it was supposed to... So that seems, one, a bit arrogant to do kind of go, we're doing this you know, because of all the love of the, the series up to that point. 
and also, yeah, ultimately kind of futile because really you could do anything that people don't agree with. And let's be honest, if you've got ardent fans, then they're always going to find something to not like about it. Then, you know, it just seems to be pointless and just obviously what happened is just fizzled out and people probably can just dismiss it as not well, really happening. It, it lasted for four years. That's the sad part. And the, actually, no, the real sad part is because the film franchise has now rebooted the timeline, you know, the original 60 series of Star Trek is technically now sidelined and these things with Christopher Pine is now the new timeline. Yet Star Trek Enterprise, being a prequel, survives this axe and is still canon to the Christopher Pine universe and indeed has been referenced in Star Trek. Is it really? Yes, the movies. That Shocking. Was prepared, I didn't know that. Shocking. Wow. So original Star Trek, gone. Enterprise, that's still good. You can keep that in your DVD shelf. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it has to be said, you know, it's a sign that something is is deeply rotten in the state of Denmark. When you've got a Star Trek series comes up, first of all, it doesn't want the name Star Trek. Second of all, the original Star Trek creator, who was, you know, keen to be associated with uh, Next Gen and and the other things, you know, he was like, yeah, I'll I'll take a credit. What was Gene Rodenbury doing during this time? Dead. What was he doing? What was he? Do- Oh yeah, he was doing Andromeda, you know, just at the tail end of his life, you know, a last thing that to, just before I leave, here's an idea for a show. That, anybody watched Andromeda? Well, I think I've seen the pilot. I saw a few episodes <laughs> of it. It's Max of Hercules, that kind of silly TV show kind of fluff. I'm sure some people might have liked it. I, did, I didn't quite get into it really. Because it's on Netflix and because, you know, it's a curio, I have managed to get through most of the first well, all of the first season, I might think I'm either up, I'm up to series, episode like seven or eight of season two. This is since I've had Netflix and I've had Netflix since 2010. And I started watching it right, you know, almost right away. Once I plowed through all of 24, I got straight into that. And it's hard work. It's such, it, it, the times that it gets it right, it's fine. It's okay. Times it gets it wrong is most of the rest of the time. I've never been so bored yeah. without falling asleep. Andromeda is not fun. And the premise of Andromeda is actually pretty good. I think originally it was supposed to be a pitch for a new Star Trek series where the Federation had yes, crumbled. Yes, it was. Yeah. Yes. The idea was that, yes, the Federation... Uh, gets taken out properly by uh, insurgents. And then there's this one Starship Federation captain who's been in stasis, who reawakes and has to rebuild the Federation from scratch in this kind of uh, dirty, gritty, crime-filled, galactic kind of anarchy that has arisen in the place. Which, you know, there we go. I mean, it doesn't matter if that's Star Trek or not. That's a pretty good idea. This this idea of this guy who's who's from another yeah, you know, well, it's to a certain extent, huh? It's like Space Captain America. You know, the right. guy who wakes up is Space Captain America. He's like, Well, what happened to these values? And everybody's gone all kind of morally relative and, and I'm gonna bring back god damn it, peace and and everybody being together and 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 accepting and I'm going to bring back honesty and I'm going to bring back fair dealing and I'm going to make sure that people feel protected and secure and that's what I'm going to bring to the universe 
what a terrific idea for talking about the problems with utopia and the problems with this stuff. And, you know, and he had this spaceship, the Andromeda Ascendant, which was like the most advanced spaceship that had ever been built. And because of the anarchy that followed the insurgents civil war, it remains the most technologically advanced because afterwards everybody was, you know, set back quite a way. Yeah. Yeah, I can see why people kind of thought that would be a good idea for a television series and commission series and what have you, but oh my god, the thing itself just totally fails to capitalise on any of that. I mean, the, the scripts are just, you, they, they never really challenge this, uh, this idea that the captain has that his way is the best way, that maybe the federation as it was, or they call it the, the republic or something, or the galactic republic or however they wanted to term it, the commonwealth, that's what they called it, the galactic commonwealth. They never really challenge the idea that maybe that wasn't such a good thing and that's why it fell over. They don't really. Well, there has to be a reason why there was a civil war and they kind of are happy with, hey, you know what? They were wrong. It was a mistake. We had the civil war because people they got a bit of a wrong idea in their head, but it's okay. That's It's always termed in those things. And the other thing is that for a universe that's kind of on the brink, for a kind of where you could think of the kind of post-apocalyptic, what you want is that kind of Mad Max idea, but on a galactic scale, it never really comes across that way. They occasionally visit, oh, it's like, oh, there's a preponderance of nightclub sets. You know, the right. universe has just become like uh, desert planets, bars and nightclubs. That's all there is, because that's what happens when society falls apart. People decide to go to the disco. Uh, it's like, oh. Uh, then they do sort of interesting things, which is like they hired a bunch of pretty people to populate the entire, the entire thing is pretty people. And you're like, oh, this is really painful. It feels like a sort of space soap opera. And then it, they wait until like episode 17 of season one to have this conversation which goes, well, of course, everybody could pretty much choose to look like the way that they want these days. We still have all that technology. And you're like, ah. Oh. If you just mentioned that, like, right off the bat, yeah. you would totally accept it. Because you go, oh, I see everyone can just genetically tweak themselves. They're all, they're, everybody's basically a walking Nintendo me. You know, it's like, that is I get, I get the feeling that's perhaps the writers trying to compensate for the casting. But, but well, even if it is the writers trying to compensate, it's still clever. It doesn't detract from the fact that it's like, well, this is the far future. Of course, people could just choose to all be. But the the one that is a bit puzzling is the fact that the sort of computer hacker stroke thief stroke is like that kind of uh, slightly naughty boy next door type. Young Bradley Cooper-esque. Not present Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper in the early days, kind of. Uh, sort of a bit more like... Um, Oh, what's that guy who played the young Indiana Jones? Yeah, him. Like that. He looks, he's got that boyish kind of thing. And you're like, so you're in a, a, a universe in which literally just about every male looks like a sort of solid slab of beefcake because they can just choose to. And you decided to go with off the rack, cute in the right light. That doesn't make any sense. No, it's because, because, you know, he's like a hacker, so he has to be some kind of nerd, the casting person thought. Uh, An attractive nerd. 
Sort of a twist. Yeah, it's, that's the point. It starts to get the main. And that, bearing in mind the fact that's one of the most intriguing aspects of the entire series is thinking of that idea of everyone can look like what they fancy looking like. You like? I think okay. if that if I think if we were dealing with something maybe more serious science fiction, you could play with all kind of things like that. Because why would everyone look like a version of is acceptable in a particular culture? What is good looking is in the eye of the beholder. Some people might think things in a completely different light. No, and they look <laughs> peculiar and strange and odd. Justin, you know? Justin, what you've come up with there is a very intriguing idea of sub societies and things that a, a spaceship crew could encounter, and ideas that you could play about with body image and culture, yeah. cultural acceptability and stuff like that. That means that if you'd taken that idea and gone, oh yeah, wow, what a fascinating concept, and walked into an Andromeda script meeting, it would have been classed as too intelligent and thrown in the bin. No, no, and no. They they watch models, you know, and and things. That's all they're looking for. Because when anyone questions it, you go, "Oh, science fiction. We've got the answer for that." Right? Okay. No, you you, <laughs> see, you walk into the into the writers' room with that idea, and they all go, "No, no, science fiction fans aren't ready for Planet of the Fat Girls just yet. They will just shot it down." I think that's the. Dream, but I had, I had a sense of this, Leo, when I saw the first one, and I just went like. I think I know what type of audience this is, and it isn't really the, you know, serious science fiction fan, or even, you know, someone who's a bit more... This is just pandering to kind of make it look pretty without any substance. Well, and, yeah, you know, but... younger, you know, it just... It just I, I just went like, I don't think I'm going to like this. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like, if it was fluffy and stupid, like, throughout, if it was like a, a big candied kind of space opera donut of junk food... Great, I'd have watched the whole thing by now. But the fact is that the kind of, the way that the studio had its way was quite obvious versus the way that there were certain things like, well, we want the episodes to be about serious things. So you have the, the race of Nietzscheans who all sell each other out and they're kind of like, you know, so they've all got to be, prove themselves to be superior and they're, they're, so they're and like, you know, and it's just like, you're trying to be intelligent, but you haven't got the brains. No. And it's that means that you're incredibly tedious because you're not going, hey, fun, let's just have Baywatch in space. That would have been fine. You know, if it had been like that kind of thing, I'm sure they would have found an audience. But he didn't find an audience because the image said nightclubs and pretty people in space and the script said Galactic Commonwealth and Trade Talks, yeah. but nothing too contentious. Well, you know, that's the, that, there, what you're talking there is the kind of the wrestling between the original Star Trek creator and then the studios, aren't you, really? Yeah, um, so there we go. I mean, you know, this is, this is the point. It was like, you know, locked into what, you know, this debate, and it kind of was the, a casualty of its own, the circumstances of its own creation, he said, sounding rather portentous. The last thing that I think that we want to do is look at, uh, well, or the last thing that I really want to focus on in the episode, just because I love it, is the fact that there were other space operas available that had kind of grown up. I mean, I think Farscape, obviously all space opera on television owes a debt to Star Trek. That's the way it is. They wouldn't happen if Star Trek hadn't happened. But things like Battlestar Galactica and Farscape, kind of a third generation. They kind of there was another space series in between that set up the idea that now we're gonna do this. I mean Farscape's so far removed from just about anything, it's almost like a, a mutant kind of 
redeveloping of the space opera, whereas BSG kind of came from Star Trek, Deep Space Nine, that had Ronald D. Moore in it. He did one of the most popular story arcs on Deep Space Nine. And so we give him the, the wherewithal to do Battlestar Galactica, you see, so it's sort of second generation. Far less second generation, something that is almost directly derived from used up and warmed over ideas from various places is Stargate. And I say that as a, a fan of Stargate. And in this case, uh, we have Stargate Atlantis, where uh, your Stargate chums or a new set of Stargate chums nip off to uh, the Horsehead Nebula, I believe it is. Or the, no, it's Pegasus Galaxy. That was the one. To have Stargate adventures in a, an ancient flying city built by a uh, far predecessing super technological race that is there. And then they fight some aliens that are pretty similar to the other aliens, but sufficiently different to make a new show. I hated Stargate Atlantis when I watched the first six episodes once, because to be fair, it doesn't get off to a great start. Thereafter, it slowly became one of my favourite Star. Well, it is my favourite Stargate franchise of the three that are available. Although I've got a place in my heart for Stargate SG-1 and a place in the basement for Stargate Universe, which I suppose we should probably cover as a sort of sidebar to this, Stargate Atlantis had all of the best things, I think. Uh, that's just my opinion. I know that nobody here apart from me is a big... Stargate fan? No, not really. I, I, I didn't see... Uh, to be honest, I haven't really seen a lot of the uh, SG-1. I don't know. Something about it didn't quite grip me. Although I understand all the strengths and I can understand why it's just maybe I just don't have the time to now look, explore it. And, and consequently, it's on I Netflix, think, Justin. I know it is. I know it is. But it's a, it's a big chunk of time that's going to take and I would want to watch it and probably get engrossed in it. So maybe. It'll, it'll be there at some point. I'll do um, yeah. So, so Stargate is obviously I wouldn't touch until I'd seen that all the OSG one. So for that, um, reason, I don't think that's necessarily not, that, not matter. No, because the, I mean they they were very sensible about this. Yeah, there are some fun crossovers, but the fact that they take the trouble to remove the cast to another galaxy means right. that although it kind of uses. How can we say, in SG-1, they develop an inter- a, a, a small fleet, just three, two or three, of interstellar space craft right. uh, that can travel using various technologies actually between stars. And these are pre-existent at the beginning of Stargate Atlantis. And indeed, on a, what's it, I think it takes about a month to get from Earth to Atlantis when you know what the coordinates are through hyperspace and then it takes about a month to get back so they could do things in either show it's like uh, well you see the uh, Daedalus or whatever it's called is on its way this shows you how that and I know because I just assumed from the title that it will be under the water on Earth somewhere no Stargate Atlantis no well uh, well, you see that's the thing Considering there's less of them, I imagine, than SG-1. Yes, there's five seasons of Atlantis. Um, Maybe I might delve into it then. Yes. Basically, the conceit is that although Atlantis began as, obviously, a, a, a city on Earth, it was built on Earth, but it's really a city that's a spaceship. And the ancients used it to escape Earth for some reason. I can't quite remember. Um, It's it's kind of hand-wavy. Oh, we have to leave. Uh, 
Don't know why. Can't remember. Who cares? We're leaving anyway. And then the city takes off and it goes to the Pegasus Galaxy and they uh, find a planet that will support the life and they land their ship on a water on the water in there the reason for all the water imagery uh, and the atlantis kind of stuff is because the ship can fly through space it should land on a large body of water and then as an actual extra layer of protection it can submerge itself like a submarine in order to provide extra camouflage and stuff gotcha. and make it yeah. sensitive. so that is the idea of atlantis the the the, the Conceit is that we rediscover Atlantis in SG-1 and then they send a crew of people who are, well, they're going to have to secure their own way home because it takes so much power to get there that they're going to have to discover another power source to come back if they ever want to, which they sort out in, in fairly short order by season two, I think. They're pretty much, oh, we're going to Earth. Oh, we're going to Atlantis. Oh, we're going to Earth. Oh, we're just done. Oh, it's fine. They, they'd kind of worked out how to do it, which is fine because it's all supposed to be romping space adventure. It isn't BSG. You know, we do have, you know, these ridiculous infinite resources to do stuff. And that's fine because that's what it's all about. That's why I say it's kind of a direct descendant of Star Trek. It, not a, not a sort of, second or third generation it's kind of like yeah this is straight down the line we're just going to do some adventures of the week and they did some clever things with it sometimes and i think some of the better things are in stargate atlantis uh for example david hewlett as rodney mckay is one of the best he's kind of like the dr smith if mm. you watched uh, lost in space of the creek he's not really i mean they they give him this kind of back and forth sometimes he's just an arrogant git and other times he's quite nice and it's like in sg1 they never had a character who was simultaneously heroic and yet deeply flawed like that it didn't happen sg1 is all square jawed jolly hockey sticks fantastic people who have like minor problems david hewlett's rodney mckay is just so unbelievably arrogant and at the same time has so unbelievably little sort of self-esteem, which it leads to sarcasm and jokes and stuff, which is great. And yeah, he's, he's the standout character. Dr. McKay is Stargate Atlantis to a certain extent for that exact reason, which is kind of why the first few episodes don't work because I think they really didn't know how to deal with that. The idea that their their best scientist, their most advanced genius, was also a bit of a git, and they didn't know how to play that, and they learn over time how to to use him to his best advantage. I do think that Stargate did have a problem with using people to their best advantage. Generally, like Amanda Tapping is actually a lot better actress, uh, demonstrated by Sanctuary, than. Stargate would have you believe. She always just seems to be like one note in Stargate. And the other thing that I really want to make a point about in Atlantis is that you have the ship's doctor, or the, the crew doctor, Carson Beckett, played by Paul McGillian. Basically, Paul McGillian in this role blows every other science fiction medical crew member that has ever existed, with the possible exception of DeForest Kelly in the original Star Trek. No, actually, he definitely goes better than him as well. As a doctor, you really buy Carson Beckett, because right. when people get banged up in Stargate Atlantis and they wake up in the infirmary, 
Paul McGillian had that touch that was like, it's all right, you're in the infirmary, everything's going to be okay. And you were like, yes, yes, I am going to be okay. I mean, for God's sake, I wish that Carson Beckett was my GP <laughs> by the time I'd watched him in about 10 episodes. I formed a deep bond with this character mm. because... He could have been the crappiest doctor ever, but the bedside manner is, <laughs> and I've, it suddenly occurred to me, no other medical crew in any other science fiction series, you've never felt better because you wake up in infirmary and no. they're there. You never feel that. But in this, you could kind of vicariously feel that people felt reassured by his presence that, you know, if they went down the planet and Carson Beckett came along, oh, if one of us gets banged up, Dr. Beckett will take care of us. Oh, it's fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, that it's worth it just for that, because that's a very unusual thing to be a standout performance. Is someone who's just a nice... It's a bit like, uh, to bring it personal, if you remember, Justin, your uh, stunning portrayal in our Cops and Cthulhu game of Racer Rashid. You know, everybody loves this guy, yes. who man of the people kind of character. Yeah. Well, it's that. But oh, just okay, that's cool. I like that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's really nice because you don't get that in many TV series. Meanwhile, you've got some really boring aliens. I mean, I didn't even know uh, Jason Momoa joins the crew in the second season uh, who played Conan in the remake. I really like him. And they, I think Jason Momoa got the gig actually because of Rodney McKay, because he's kind of he's basically Dargo from Farscape, but just not with all the facial furniture. He's like a gruff kind of aggressive kind of alien type. And the only reason I think they had a place for him on the, the crew was because they'd already proved that you could have a character who had deep personal flaws and get away with it. And second of all, because of Farscape. Because, hey, everybody loves Dargo, so everybody will love Ronan Dex. Unfortunately, beyond that, I mean, for God's sake, one of the main characters was played by Robert Picardo, who basically made Voyager. The Doctor's yeah. character in Voyager is one of the things that makes Star Trek Voyager bearable. Robert Picardo in Stargate and in Stargate Atl in SG-1 and Atlantis never really makes a mark. His character isn't allowed to be in entertaining. So, yeah, I think that S Stargate as a whole, as a franchise, had a problem with... Letting characters be breathe, they always had to be something, and and then, hence we get onto universe, the horrible collision between Stargate and the new Battlestar Galactica. Did anyone even watch this apart from me? I've seen the pilot, and I went, yeah, I don't want to watch this. <laughs> Justin, you've had a bad show this time, haven't you? Yeah, well, no, there's something I do want to talk about that I've really enjoyed, but I, I have to say it's not really my genre of very long science fiction stuff. I dip in and out of them, but I must admit I have had some bad experiences with some of these recent ones, yes. Yeah. Show me um, on the doll where the science fiction show touched you. Um, <laughs> just to kind of talk about... Me and Stargate, because I, I really liked the movie when it first came out, and I was all up for watching the series, and I, I got as much as I could. Again, I've talked about this in the past. It was snatched away by Rupert Murdoch and put on his cable channels, and so I was permanently behind the curve on, on Stargate. I know people watch Stargate about cable, and they were really into it, and I'm absolutely convinced Stargate is the great love of my life I never had. 
I think I would have loved it. I think I would have treasured it. I would, it would have been a bank of DVDs on my shelves. I would have been into Atlantis. I probably would have collected Universe as well, just because I had to be completist, even though I never watched it. But, you know, there is a real bit of, bit of a problem now, and it's kind of the passage of time. The other day, well, not the other day, it was quite a few months ago now, I just, I was just having to put a bit of, put a bit of Babylon 5 on, and I was like, my God, this is cheap. It really shows now, especially in high, de- high definition DVD. Uh, it wasn't so clear when you're watching it on, on blurry VHS. And I've watched some old episodes of Stargate and things like that, and, and the cheapness of it comes through. And I don't necessarily think it's just a matter of cheapness. It's more a case of visual language and what we can do in photography these days is just so much better in terms of tinting and layering a picture. So it's not so clear they're standing on a wooden painted set. But I, I do wonder if today for modern audiences, does the Stargate franchise just look dated? Because it's my big fear of dipping into it and, and love trying to love it. It's me going, this is, this is now a very old series. It's over 15 years old at least, surely by now. Yeah, I think, well, Stargate kind of gets – where you basically Stargate does that thing that is later made famous by Doctor Who of being like, oh, and this week we're just going to fall back on our old res- – our, our, our known resources. They spent a hell of a lot of money on that Stargate SG-1 base set. And so in the first couple of series at least and, and then ongoing, you have the odd episode where it's just like, and we're not going to leave the base. But that's fine because the base is a very well-made set, so it works perfectly well. Uh, Atlantis doesn't get away quite as easily because, of course, their base is an ancient spaceship, super spaceship. And they've already established in the SG-1 universe what ancient technology looks like. And what it looks like is like a sort of concept interior design from a new age interior design catalogue of the mid-1990s full of crystals and tall stained glass windows and columns and white open plan spaces it's like a sort of hippie ikea nightmare but i think the thing about that is because they did wrap their head around these are the things and this is the language of the stargate universe kind of gets away with it quite a lot of the time no, yeah, I mean, I would say that if you can stand to watch an old episode of Next Gen or indeed Star Trek Voyager, you can stand to watch SG-1 and Atlantis, certainly. I mean, it's it's interesting to note that Universe, obviously coming much later, has all the new visual tricks in terms of, you know, the sets are all uh, pretty spinky and the camera work is all modern and they've come up with this thing. But, I mean, I think the thing that you would, would probably... I mean, Ian, do you have Battlestar Galactica? You've got the original Battlestar Galactica. Do you have 1980 as well? No, I didn't get 1980. Well, then you wouldn't get Stargate Universe because you'd be able to look at it and go, but in all practical senses, it's not part of the, it's got, it's like the reverse actually of Enterprise. They've stuffed Stargate on the beginning of a, a, a science fiction television show, but it, it really has very little to do with the Stargate franchise. You know, they've kind of put some window dressing to say, oh, well, you know, here's a Stargate and this spaceship you're on is an ancient spaceship and blah, blah, blah. It's all part of the SG universe. But the minute that they get there, they can't get back. And in this case, unlike Stargate Atlantis, they don't instantly discover something that'll send you back them back 
to Earth so that they can be, well, we're in this other universe flying on a ship going somewhere we don't know where it's going, but now we're just going to pop back to Earth for two minutes. You know, they don't do that. They decided to go the full, like, you are going to be in this spaceship and it is going to be miserable and we're going to, all those things that people thought would be cool in Star Trek Voyager, where we're running out of resources and all of that kind of stuff. I mean, in BSG, they had a fleet to kind of manage and it was kind of like there was that whole strand whereas this is one ship and a crew don't know how to operate it and david hewlett treads a line between being you know a scientific hero an annoying douche and comic relief he is deftly steps between those roles robert carlyle is a nutter, like you, a dangerous lunatic. There is no way that after his first couple of antics, a bunch of people who were going a bit Lord of the Flies wouldn't just cave his head in with a rock. It would, it would, it just doesn't make any sense. He's a dangerous loony. And they would all have died anyway. I mean, this, the plots of the thing. And then the other thing is that Stargate is like, oh, and now we're going to have, we're going to meet the cute aliens. And then we're going to meet the dangerous aliens. And then we're going to meet the just for one show aliens. And it's all about meeting alien cultures and having a bit of a laugh and seeing how the galaxy has evolved. And it's like, no, none of that. You're in a galaxy that doesn't have any life as far as anyone can work out. In a ship that's going nowhere through a universe that hates you and you're all trapped in a tin can with no water no air a lunatic it's just like so this isn't stargate this is something else this is yeah the lord of the flies in space (laughs) it's it's just appalling i mean it, it had its fans but it's exactly that thing of enterprise the fans of stargate universe are not stargate fans and Stargate fans don't like Stargate Universe. It's that simple. Who does like Galactica 1980? Mind you, you say I wouldn't be the type to go out and there collect it. For some years, I actually have been trying to get the aborted second Babylon 5 spin-off, Legend of the Rangers, on DVD. But so few buggers are willing to post it to Australia. I did get a copy before Christmas, but once I opened it up, inside, what did I find? It was a CD for the uh, Star Wars Clone Wars uh, Volume 1, not the animated one, the one that came before it. My God, the world is conspiring to keep that series from me, maybe for my own good. So there we go. I mean, I think we've, uh, we, we have bravely ventured where nobody has been before. Uh, sorry, been previously in this episode. And what we've discovered is that, uh, that, that Justin just doesn't have the stomach for long-term can I, can space I, travel. Can I just talk about briefly something I do like in this period? Oh, yeah, you certainly can. What about Firefly? We talked about that, though. That was I one mean, of our one-season wonders. I mean, I suppose we could uh, talk about it again. Oh, okay, all right. No, that's fair enough. Now, now, I will leave it that. That's really what I took out of that. That was my kind of level. And uh, even though I dipped into things, I didn't really get into it. Yeah, I think... I mean, well, that's... Firefly Firescape, I think. If it's got fire in it, then I'm good. Firefly Firescape. Well, that's the thing. I mean, what you... The interesting thing about Stargate SG-1, just to, as we're in a Stargate mode at the moment, is that it goes in phases... Like the, the, up until the point at which Daniel Jackson, Michael Shanks, and until he had a bit of a tantrum about how much he was getting paid, and they just went, fine, we'll sack you then. And they sacked him, and they brought on poor old Jonas Quinn. I say poor old Jonas Quinn, nothing bad happened to Jonas Quinn, but he had fans, and it was all fine. But when Michael Shanks went, 
All right, then. I know you're struggling with that. But I'll come back. We're really not, Michael. No, but it's fine. I'll take my odd place. And, and then, you know, I could just picture them pulling uh, the, the actor playing Jonas Quinn into an office and just being like, yeah, the thing is, he was here before you. And, uh, yeah, I mean, Jonas Quinn never got a chance. And he was he made himself into a pretty decent character by the end of season five. Uh, I think it was season five. It might be season six. Whichever season he was in, anyway. And then in comes Danny Jacks. Go, hey everyone, I'm back. And they went, oh yeah, that's great. And and so yeah, you get that up to that point. Then you get the Jonas Quinn season, which is almost like its own thing because you've changed the dynamic. Then you get the post Jonas Quinn period up until the end of season eight, at which point Richard Dean Anderson says, that's it for me. I'm out of here. And then you get nine and ten, which is almost like a completely different series. I mean, to the point where the first episode of season nine is about Ben Browder's character going around them all and going, hey, do you want to do SG-1 again to the regulars? And them going, not really that bothered, to be honest. It's kind of been done. I mean, they actually make it a feature. And the reason they make it a feature is because I think it's probably a good way. We come in big full circle. It cannot be denied, and we know this from the credits, apart from anything else, but Ben Browder got heavily involved in the development of the story of Farscape. And it is quite clear that when the network wanted more SG-1 because the figures were fine and Richard Dean Anderson and that wanted no more Stargate because they felt it had been done, they went to Ben Browder and said, well, you've been on that Farscape. That got cancelled. Do you want to do it? And he said, as long as I can have a heavy input into the way that the story arcs work out um, and have you got some work for my friend Claudia? And they went, yeah whatever go ahead you crazy kids and so season nine and ten are like a two season completely separate it really is like the joke is oh it's fargate or starscape but that's only half a joke because the entire dynamic of everything in those last two seasons changes and you can feel farscape coming through in Stargate, because Ben Browder's there. I mean, that whole idea of having an episode where all the regular characters that people have come to love have gone, yeah, I've got other stuff to do. I'm not really interested in doing Stargate SG-1. And um, Ben Browder's there going, oh, but come on, guys, let's, come on, yeah, you know, Stargate. That's a really Farscape concept for an episode because it simultaneously is in-universe and it's also meta to that universe so that's that and then in, in within two episodes of the beginning of season nine daniel jackson and uh, cloudy black's character vala get um the kind of stargate equivalent of one of those you know the thing that they do with neck collars where it blows your head off if you get more than so maybe yeah that kind of thing and of course daniel jackson's a very serious archaeological scientist and claudia black showing that she's also an amazing actress is playing a kind of completely the opposite of erin son basically a thief a rogue uh, doesn't take anything seriously, deeply emotionally conflicted. And you know, it's that odd couple pairing. And it's like Stargate would never have done this before. This is obviously Ben Bradder going, wouldn't it be really good if we got the guy who was kind of got to stick up his butt and the woman who's just like doesn't take anything seriously and paired them together? And yeah, the nine and ten are their own reimagining of the Stargate universe. And actually pretty good. Terrible finale, though. 
The mm. finale of Stargate SG-1 in Season 8 is terrific. The finale of Stargate SG-1 as a whole in Season 10 is just terrible. But there are some TV movies, one of which I haven't seen. So, so yes, that's how you approach it. Don't think of it as one thing. Think of it as a, yeah. you know, a number of things all put next to each other. Fair enough. I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm glad it exists because I actually, I didn't, I, I didn't like the film originally. I actually preferred from what I've seen the TV show. So yeah. at some point I will delve into the various incarnations of it. Yes, my, uh, my, what, what I would uh, definitely say is that uh, the, the, the proof of series nine and ten of uh, Stargate SG One is that for a long time I just kind of denied they existed. Because like that's just stupid. You changed all the cast. You've beaten the main baddies in season eight. There's nothing else to do. Um, and then I watched it, and they slowly became their own thing. I, I, I have a deep affection for those those uh, parts of the the story for that reason um so yes we're going to uh turn our eyes back to the viewpoint i don't think we have found uh a sensible i tell you what um i have a new mission parameter for you mr ian oh we can take this starship forward into the universe to seek out a five or six season space opera that justin will become addicted to that we really don't have time for and then he could go on about that for ages we could listen to him blithering on uh, and not really have much to say and then the tables will be turned i think we're going to need some like a viewer su- listener suggestions though because I'm, I'm i'm a blank so hmm. where can we get well, listener that's what suggestions? Says the universe like, uh, well if- put it this way as long as it doesn't involve Lots of people worrying about whether they can get toilet roll, wondering whether the toilet roll is in fact some robotic essence that that will kill them and doesn't have bits of silly rubber stuck on on top of it. And if it doesn't have those things, I'm probably okay. Cool. Right. Well, if you've got some ideas of some galactic coordinates of places we might go to find a space opera that Justin will enjoy, uh, where could they communicate that to us through subspace wavelengths, Ian? Well, one place you could hail our starship would be our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. And that's 80s as in numbers. So 80s. Uh, Please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But, but podcasts are what it's all about. And for those who want to point your browser towards 80s kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S kids dot podomatic dot com, uh, please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice, or download your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found. For the box set of our podcast, they must go to... Uh, LeoStableford.com, where yes, the full uh, archive of podcasts stretching back uh, now for almost two years is available in, in bits and pieces from the internet archive, uh, as well as other things that may be of interest. Uh, but if if we wish to again a visual impression of the vastness of space, it won't be much good for that. Have you got any suggestions where they might go to see such a pictorial feast, Justin? Uh, you might see something like that on my DeviantArt page, uh, Justin Wyatt at DeviantArt.com. Examples of various things that I do enjoy spending my time playing around with. I don't want to alarm anybody, but I've noticed our ship has, in fact, run out of toilet paper. Oh, no. And uh, The funny thing is, last time I was in the bathroom, I swear 
I swear that the roles of Andrex were talking to one another. Other ah. papers are available. Uh, we better get someone to deal with that. How about you, Justin? Uh, I'm, I'm rocking in a corner now. Please, please, thinking, I'm thinking of fiery things, fiery things. They'll make it better. Right, okay. Uh, we better take him down to the medical bay. So for now, ta-ra! Farewell! Goodbye!